Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Adam Stanley. Adam's the Chief Information Officer and Chief Digital Officer of Cushman and Wakefield, a Chicago-based commercial real estate services firm with revenues of nearly $9 billion annually. In this role, Adam provides strategic and operational direction for the company's client-facing and company-facing technology systems and infrastructure across all business lines and markets. In this interview, we discuss Adam's view on working from home, why he moved from Chicago to Austin, and his belief that technology can't replicate the full in-person work experience. We also discuss Adam's advice for those looking to make a positive change in social justice, why every board of a Fortune 500 company needs to demand a quarterly diversity report, and some of the recruiting tools that are looking to take away subconscious bias out of recruiting. Lastly, we discuss Adam's advice for CIOs looking to join boards, Adam's interest in technologies that positively impact the environment, how the pace of technological change is faster today than ever before, and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Even before COVID hit, most savvy private equity businesses were looking for recession-proof companies as their targets, or businesses that are thriving in the fourth industrial revolution, meaning those that are blurring the lines between physical, digital, and biological spheres. We at Zoho are positioned to help CIOs blur the physical and digital divide. Be it serving your customers, we provide marketing, sales, and support solutions. Or running your operations, we provide HR and finance tools. Or empowering your people, we provide powerful business intelligence, collaboration, and communication tools. Or for building differentiation, we provide business process optimization, low-code and no-code platforms to deliver apps faster. Learn more on how Zoho enables CIOs to thrive in the fourth industrial revolution at Zoho.com. Thanks, Timothy. I also wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So what is a better normal? We believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience, a thoughtfully designed set of processes built on well-deployed intelligent automation and AI augmenting a highly trained service team, able to work safely from home if necessary, all backed by a cloud-based workforce management and collaboration platform. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, 
and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences and a truly better normal. To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. Adam Stanley, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you. Thank you. Very uh, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. No, it's a pleasure. Um, Adam, I thought we'd begin uh, with your role. You were the Chief Information Officer and Chief Digital Officer of Cushman and Wakefield. And I wonder if you could take a moment and describe your purview and those two different sides, at least of your title. Sure. Um, I, I think it's always interesting because a lot of people, there are so many different derivations of the title of the CIO. Um, I do think of them as very different. I think that there is there is an individual that has to be the ultimate corporate steward of data, technology, and all of the systems required to kind of do our jobs, to be productive, to deliver services to our clients today. And to in, in my mind, that's the CIO. And I, I think the m- mistake that many CIOs make is they, they say that the CIO is the pipes, you know, is maintaining things and keeping the pipes running. I think there's a lot of innovation in what you do for your current clients. Um, and it's a really important role. Um, so it's a very robust role. But at the same time, you also need to have a view towards the future, a view towards how business models might change, um, a view towards how competitors may be coming from outside of your industry. And there frankly may be needs that your clients will have five years from now that they don't know they will <laughs> have five years from now. So to some extent, I think my CDO role is, is more focused on that. So, so it's really, what are the conversations we need to have with our clients, with our business leaders, with the market, with VCs, with everyone else around predicting the future and predicting things that might change for the organization. Uh, Very different roles um, and yet both equally important for an organization like mine or frankly any business. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's a very interesting perspective as well. Um, and I, I, I agree with you in terms of the value of having it all under one leader. There are certainly other organizations, as you're aware, that divide up CIO or chief digital officer, chief data officer. And you might have three or four different people that have roles that kind of rhyme and have a little bit of perhaps of an overlap of the Venn diagram, which can create uh, its own confusion. I, my own thought, at least painting with a broad brushstroke, is oftentimes it's, a, it's the view that there's something lacking in one executive, so let's get you know somebody who has a different set of perspectives, and then all of a sudden you've got a lot of chefs in the kitchen, so to say. But uh, but but your your vision of having for the value that's derived for having it consolidated is certainly compelling. I wonder if you could take a quick moment. You talked a little bit about how, especially the digital side of your world, has you looking into the future. You're kind of you know uh, playing around a year or two or three in advance. I would imagine, and you're you're inventing the things that uh, are going to impact the company and customers down the road. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the methods that you use in order to do so? Um, you know, how do you remain aware of rising trends and how you might parlay that uh, into value for the company and value for your customers? Yeah. I, so, so first of all, the biggest thing that uh, that's a religion for me is I focus first and always on the client. So a lot of people say that and a lot of people give it lip service, but I really do focus on the client and I think if you if you focus on the client the right way, 
you're understanding what the client needs and not just why they're buying your product. And the reason that's important is if you're, say, a hotel chain and you focus on the fact that people need a place to stay when they're traveling to visit family or on vacation, you actually could have anticipated that Airbnb would actually come about. Um, but if you're a hotel that only focuses on how the client uses your products, your rooms, then you miss. And so in th the way we think about innovation is we think about our clients as property owners, property occupiers, and what are the things that they actually need. So they need space, they need uh, uh, an, uh, opportunities to be productive, they need to have a flexible way of managing their capital. Um, so there are all these needs. And our job is to find different unique ways to meet those needs. And today, it might be finding them an office with 100,000 square feet. Um, tomorrow, it might be finding them one 80,000 square foot office and multiple flex offices around the world. Um, and tomorrow, it may be helping them optimize their work from home infrastructure and how they actually support employees that may never return to the workplace. But it's all the client's problem is we have a lot of employees and we want them to do their jobs in the most productive manner. And, and that's the problem that we need to solve. Um, so that's, that's the philosophy of the client. And then in terms of how we do it, um, we believe in the three-legged stool of innovation. So we work with universities, we work with startups and uh, venture capital firms, and then of course our business leaders, we all kind of work together. Um, so for instance, problem is identified by a business. We think there's an opportunity to do things a little different. We typically will go to one of our VC partners like Fifth Wall, which is one of our, our biggest partners. We'll present the, part, the problem to them. They will come back with a few startups that they think may be interesting to us and might have answers. We then have workshops with those three parties together. We troubleshoot, we problem solve, we come up with ideas. We present them back to different client groups and different test beds, get reaction, and we iterate. And we just keep doing that over and over and over again. And, um, and when you do it enough, you actually become known as a good partner. And what you find is that some of these VCs start bringing problems to me hmm. that I haven't brought to them. So I got a call this morning. It's like, well, so have you thought about decarbonization? I was like, as a matter of fact, I have spent exactly zero minutes <laughs> on decarbonization. And in fact, I'm Googling decarbonization <laughs> just to make sure I know what you're talking about. Um, but, <laughs> but as we started talking, I, I started to realize that a lot of the conversations that we're having with our clients around energy optimization and sustainability, decarbonization, it's just the new era, it's a new generation of some of those conversations. And so now I have a meeting um, set up to talk to that person again and dig deeper and actually meet and then maybe see if there's something that we can do together. But it's 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 got to be a, a, a very agile and a very comfortable uh, relationship. Yeah, 
That's really interesting. I, I appreciate you uh, you describing the the different legs of the stool and how you're leveraging those. I want to linger on one of the trends that you you uh, you raised among the various ideas that you just discussed, and that's work from home. And what an interesting meta topic for somebody like you, who of course uh, are experiencing it in your business life, but mm-hmm. you're also thinking of ways to bring it to life for those who um, you know who are the the uh, how did you put it the property occupiers. Uh, uh, the property owners. Um, and, and obviously it has a new, uh, urgency to it than it would have if you were thinking about this in November of last year, let's say, or January, even of this year. Um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that idea and how that takes shape? Um, maybe even, you know, leveraging some of your own and your team's experience, but also I would imagine engaging with, with those customers. Um, yes, it's a fascinating conversation. This is my day I want to say 164 of working remote myself. So I've <laughs> I've been working from home for 160. And, and I remember the first day that I went home, it was, you know, COVID was an issue and we were hearing about it. And um, there was someone that had come into the office with symptoms and at an abundance of caution, we basically said, don't come into the office. The next day, we're going to super clean it. And um, and then the rest is history. That was the last day I left the office. Uh, and I haven't been back since then because, you know, things got worse. Um, and one of the things that we found fascinating is that everyone thinks about technology when they're talking about working from home. And, and that's absolutely valid for the first say two to three weeks, maybe even a month, because we were swimming, we were great. We, everything was cloud first, everything was mobile enabled. Our people were able to be productive from the very first day. My CEO called me and he was like, oh my God, Adam, I was on the phone with one of my peer CEOs and he was telling me how horrible things were going. And I told him, oh, it's, it's great for us. But the problem is the technology only is, is part of the problem. And what's, what's been interesting and what we found is that some of the things that you would expect, the biases and the stereotypes that, frankly, you've had in your mind for years, like the people that are older will hate working from home and the younger people will be totally fine with it. Because of the longevity of work from home, it's completely up in the air. So we found some of the younger people hate it because unlike you know some of us their offices are their bedrooms their one studio apartment and so the first thing that we've we've really uh, tried to figure out is how do you actually put technology as the core of your work from home experience but you actually create other things around that experience um analytics and how they're working and the chairs that they're using and how their offices are set up um, and it's been really, really fascinating. So there's a lot of themes that we've been exploring um, in in the space. If you're interested in, in talking more about it, um, would love to to share some of that. Yeah, it's very, very. I mean, I would love to. Maybe you can you can peel back the onion another layer, and we'd love to hear a little bit further about that. Sure. Um, so, so the first first layer is workforce analytics and productivity. So the question was, how do you how do you measure whether or not people are more productive um, or less productive working remote. So the fear historically, and the reason certain managers were always 
afraid of letting their people work from home is there was this visual that the people that work from home were, you know, would take a phone call and then they go to the garden and then they, you know, respond to an email and then they go to Starbucks. And, and so we started exploring how do you, um, how do you measure productivity? Um, and then the second part of the question is how do you actually measure employee engagement and all of the studies around people performing better when they're able to be their authentic selves, but also performing better when they feel they're part of something greater than them and that they're part of kind of a community. Um, and so you have productivity and engagement and how do you kind of measure those when so many people are working from home? So we actually started taking our workforce data, which was in Workday, plus some productivity data that we we're able to use. Um, Microsoft has a tool, um, work, Workforce um, Analytics, and it actually pulls a lot of the data from the systems that we're using, the phone calls, the emails, the instant messaging, all of those, those chats. Um, and then, of course, we have data from Salesforce that's showing kind of what we're doing with clients. And so we started to put all of those things together um, and try to start painting a picture of what was happening post-COVID. And we were able to actually look at the period of time before March and the period of time after March and see what was happening. And for each division and each function, we're able to start seeing certain organizations were actually much more productive. Certain levels were talking to each other much more than they were before. Um, but we were able to really start reacting. We, we found that our managers weren't talking enough to their direct reports. There weren't enough one-on-ones taking place. And these are actionable things that you can do to make sure that your employees aren't feeling isolated and lonely and all of those things that, that can lead to a decline in productivity or a decline in, um, in employee engagement. And so it was really fascinating. The more we started to look into it, um, and then we actually partnered with our strategic consulting team. And there's a tool that we, we have called Experience Per Square Foot. And it's basically a way of collecting a lot of data from occupants of buildings on their experience. What makes them happy? What makes them more productive? What makes them feel healthier um, about the space? And we took that and we slimmed it down and we created an experience per square foot at home version. And so now we were able to go out to a lot of populations and say, all right, now answer these questions from the perspective, the same perspective, but now you're working from home. So instead of kind of evaluating your experience working in a large corporate building, you're evaluating your experience as a remote worker. And then we tie that to all of the other pieces. So it's just, I mean, it's kind of big brother, Peter, to me. It, it feels weird when you think, but it's absolutely fascinating to see all of these correlations. And if you, if you start to use those correlations to make decisions, you move past I'm shrinking my budget for real estate, so I want to just send 20% of the people home so that I can have less space that I have to pay for. Actually, you move to a conversation that says, actually, I am optimizing the productivity of my employees, increasing the retention of my employees by optimizing who works at home, who works in the office, and, and, and that's a fundamentally different conversation. And as horrible as this year has been, 
I don't think we would have had those conversations had we not had COVID. So it, as, as strange as that sounds. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like a, a, an unusual silver lining to, to new analysis that the, the crisis warranted. That's really interesting. I'm also, it strikes me that you're an unusually, uh, you're unusually well positioned, Adam, to, to pontificate, if you don't mind my asking, about changing habits you're seeing about where people choose to live and work. There's been a lot of conversation about whether the Chicago's where you are, Washington, where I am, New York, San Francisco, places that are expensive to live, but have a high concentration of, you know, interesting people and interesting jobs and all these sorts of things to, you know, possibly move off to out into the country where you have a little more space where during a time like this, people, you know, really appreciate that and at a lower price point, perhaps. Um, is there anything that, uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I realize it's not like it's been years of this, but do you have, are you drawing any conclusions about uh, changes that are afoot? Um, well, full disclosure, I have a much more unique exposure than you probably realize because between the last time we spoke and this time, I moved to Austin. Oh, <laughs> there, there it is. Okay, forgive me. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a very unique. And, and, it, and it's interesting. And I feel I, I'm still very loyal to Chicago for anyone who, who's listening from Chicago. But the, um, it, I, after several months of working remote, began to have conversations with the rest of the members of the management team and and kind of explored the concept. My team is completely global. I have uh, I have people in twenty different countries. My direct reports are um, are all over, and and frankly, most of our interaction was remote to begin with. Mm-hmm. Our clients are all over the world. So when I go out and I do sales pitches with some of our client facing professionals, I'm traveling to those pitches regardless. And um, and so I am a, a, a personal example of uh, a change of scenery. Hmm. Uh, basically, moving somewhere where I can uh, I can work just as hard, if not harder, um, because my commute is uh, five minutes uh, from you know my bedroom to my office, and um, <clears throat> and I can, in the case of Austin, I can live a more uh, a warmer life, a longer growing season, and just have a different change of pace. But it's, I sense there are a lot of people that are doing that. And the question becomes, how do companies a- adapt? Because I don't believe that a company, a company's culture has to be so rock solid to enable 100% work remote um, from anywhere in the world. Your, your culture has to be so strong and there has to be such a sense of, of purpose that your people can be in a small town in Oklahoma and feel as connected to the company as people in the headquarters. Um, and I think most companies are so far, I don't think there's a company like that. Um, so I think what's probably gonna happen is you're gonna see technology enabling a lot more flexibility. You're going to see a reduction in that I'm going to work in the office today because my boss is going to be there and I want he or she to see me. Um, um, You're going to see less kind of travel because um, we have a big, you know, meeting and we want to do it face to face. 
probably that's going to be a reduction. But I think that you technology has yet to find a way to substitute for that sense of purpose and that that engagement that you get um, from sharing a beer with a colleague, from going out for coffee, uh, from you know randomly running into a colleague that you barely work with on the train in the morning and, and, and experiencing that you have that in common. Like those are those experiences that I don't think anyone has been able to replicate even with artificial intelligence and virtual reality and all this other stuff. You can't replicate those human inter interactions. And, um, and that's why I think that ultimately most people are still gonna wanna be in an office. Yeah, that's really interesting. Interesting uh, assessment and, and uh, appreciate you personifying it with your own kind of choices as well. Um, one of the other very interesting aspects of your, uh, your background is that you are, you've been on the board of multiple organizations. Um, you, you are on the board of GATX, uh, um, a rail car leasing company, uh, on, the, on the board of 1871, um, uh, uh, You've been on, the, been on the board of multiple organizations, and, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, your pathway to gaining board access. It's an ambition that a lot of technologists have, and I think that we're starting to see a greater number of people in this fraternity or sorority uh, for a variety of reasons, including the increasing strategic importance of technology, of, I'll use a broad term, but digital transformation and its importance, even on the resilience of a lot of businesses today that this is likely to be, there are a lot of, going to be a lot more people that are um, swimming in your wake or walking down the path that you've been setting. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you initially kind of gained that access and, uh, and, and maybe lessons for others who would wish to do so. Yeah, so, and there's, there's two things that I would say. Is there's first getting there. I'll talk about getting there. And then the second thing that I think is important is once you're there, as quickly as possible, moving away from just being the technology guy. Mm, good. Which has been fascinating because it's the same challenge you have in a CIO role. <laughs> so, but so it's so it's interesting getting there. I think um, so. I'm a I'm a voracious um, OneNote user. I know people use Evernote and all kinds of other tools, but I'm a OneNote guy, and I <laughs> I take lots of notes and I. I use, um, I'm not a networker per se. I like to talk to interesting people. And so I'll meet people that are interesting for whatever reason at an event, at, you know, at a, uh, a CIO conference or whatever it might be. And I just always, I follow up and I talk to them. And I just, I literally do find people's experiences, especially those that are very different than mine, are just fascinating. And so the first thing I'd say is just talk to people whenever you can and not just when you need them, um, I think would be the first advice that I give to CIOs. Um, the second thing that I would say is, and this gets me in trouble with certain um, IT-oriented organizations that will remain um, nameless, but I don't tend to attend very many CIO-type events. It's not because I don't find that they could be valuable. It's just that there's so many other things that are, are important for business. And, and I need to get exposure to that. So I can get exposure to the latest and greatest in technology 
from my, my organization, from their participation in different things, from consultants coming left and right with great ideas. I can get a lot of the technology, but really it's when you go to those events that have the CEOs and the CFOs that you learn about the common language of the CFO and the common language of the CEO. And the more you understand the common language of the CFO and the CEO, the greater opportunity you'll have to actually talk to CFOs and CEOs. Um, and that's ultimately what the board needs. So they, they don't want a CIO that is going to just talk about technology all the time. They want someone who will be interested in the business, understand P&Ls, understand uh, financial models, and then understand how technology might play into their business and, and help them understand. So I think first, talk to a lot of people. Second, try as much as possible to um, diversify the people you're talking to so they're not just all techies um, and their CFOs and, and CEOs. And then third, just keep trying. Um, GATX was my, my first and, and only public board and it was my third attempt. Um, so I, I went through two, um, two board search efforts before that. One of them ended up stopping midway um, because the company decided not to go public. Um, and then the second one, I just wasn't selected. Uh, and, uh, and it can be very frustrating <laughs> Because um, if you're at the top of your game as a CIO, you know you, you know I don't get turned down from CIO roles very often, um, but the board thing is is kind of painful. Um, so keep trying. Um, but then once you're in there, uh, immediately do all you can to learn about the business, to build trust of the CEO um, and the or the chairman of the board. And, uh, and really, really get beyond just being the IT guy, which is, to me, the most fun part of being on a board. That's really sound advice. I appreciate you sharing that uh, and sharing a bit more about your experience there. Um, you mentioned uh, something that is surely true, that this has been one heck of a trying year for a variety of reasons. We've talked about the pandemic. We've talked about uh, the consequences of, uh, you know, the economic consequences of this. Uh, and so the form that this correction has taken is at least in our lifetimes new. Uh, what is not new is, is uh, though perhaps some renewed focus is on uh, social injustice, uh, which unfortunately we, ha we have even recent reminders of. And, and I, I, you and I have uh, collaborated in the past um, to discuss some of these topics, and I hope you don't mind my revisiting it with you. It's, a, it's an important one for us to reflect on, I believe, as I, as I know you do. And, and I wonder, you know, for, for for people who wish to be, you know, part of the positive change, um, what sort of advice do you have, you know, for, for people who might be listening to this, who, um, who recognize that they don't have necessarily the, the right ratio or, or have not developed the, 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 the mechanics to have a pipeline of, of well-qualified um, uh, people of color, um, what sort of advice would you have for them uh, so that, uh, you know, organizations are more representative of society at large? Wow, that, that is probably a, I mean, that's a 419-year <laughs> conversation. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think the first thing that I would say, and, and I just, I always, um, I find it important to always remind people 
that the things that have happened recently are things that happened recently, but they're not new. Mm-hmm. What's new is the visibility and the ability of social media to 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 share it much more broadly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think the the, the first thing, and, and this is really important to me personally because it's really important that people understand facts as well as anecdotes. So um, facts, even at the, the pre-COVID, the best unemployment you know, in, in history, December 2019, African-American unemployment was twice that of white unemployment. Um, as of you know, 2018, uh, the average wealth or the median wealth of black families was about 2% of the median wealth of white families. And so I think that sometimes the first thing I would encourage people to do is to definitely research the problem because there's, there's a risk. I want desperately for people to know that a police officer putting their knee on someone's neck for nine minutes is absolutely abhorrent and a horrifying thing. But if they think that's the problem and the only thing that they have to address is getting bad cops out of police departments, then they're missing the point. Because the problem is unemployment, it's generational wealth, it's income um, disparities um, based on race, and all of those things are really important. So first advice that I would always give people is to make sure you do the research and, and understand what the problem is first. Um, second, I would say then take that information and actually commit yourself to doing something about it. Um, Melanie Hobson, I, I loved her interview recently where she said every other problem that businesses are faced with, they solve because they measure and they manage what they measure diversity has not, you know, there's four black CEOs out of the Fortune 500 today. There were four black CEOs in the Fortune 500 20 years ago. <laughs> nothing, um, nothing has changed. And so somehow take the data that you have, commit yourself to actually doing something to, to make a change and then measure and make sure that you're demanding, that you're looking to to measure progress. I think that every board of a Fortune 500 company needs to demand of their CEO a quarterly report on diversity within their company at the board level that shares all of their statistics on hiring practices, on retention, on income and uh, and wage uh, equality board report the same way compliance reports are, are normal. They report every quarter on, um, on employee uh, lawsuits and workers' comp and all of the financials, all of those things that, that have to be measured. Boards need to demand that when it comes to diversity. Uh, and I think that's how we start to, uh, to see things change. I, I do really appreciate you uh taking a few moments and sharing those, those important perspectives, Adam, are, are there, um, 
if you don't mind my asking, and maybe there's there aren't uh, um, individual organizations that you would like to to point out, but I wonder are there are there as you have uh, looked to as somebody who has has risen uh, to such a uh, an august position within your own company and now serving as a board member for other organizations, as you look you know to create more more people who look like you in positions like yours. Um, are there organizations that you think have been particularly effective in, um, and I'm not necessarily talking about like pure organizations to Cushman and Wakefield, but even organizations that foster, um, you know, people at young ages to, to get them involved in technology to, you know, um, you know, to, 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 to take people that, that, um, that come from disadvantaged backgrounds and providing them, um, advantages that they wouldn't otherwise have to, to put them on a different path. Are there any that you'd like to shine a light on? Um, I mean, I would. So just to to be selfish, I will. Two organizations that um, that were my bedrock, they're my foundations um, <laughs> that still make me laugh when I think about the memories. Junior achievement. Um, it's amazing. No one really talks about junior achievement, but junior achievement was the organization that kind of instilled in me kind of the sense of business and connection and and entrepreneurship and kind of doing the right thing. Um, Inroads was the other organization that gave me my first um, professional job opportunity working in a bank and uh, wearing my suit and carrying my little um, uh, Eddie Bauer briefcase with me <laughs> every day. Um, I see Stars is another organization that kind of takes the almost the next age group of of you know post college age youth um, and and young adults that are trying to. To do something different and, and change their their path and their direction, um, but I think that the the challenge is that all of these organizations are are trying to do things from a almost from a charitable and a feel good per perspective. I think when change is really going to happen is when more companies are are looking at growth and they're looking at how they're they're wanting to grow their businesses. And they find out that there's no way they can grow without actually becoming a better place for women, a better place for minorities. Because if you look at the demographics, if you're trying to recruit all white straight males over 60, there's a limited supply. <laughs> and, and eventually you'll run out and you have to be able to, to attract others. So I think, what I don't see very effective um, are public-private nonprofit partnerships, and I think we need to see more of those. Where there's there's a company, there's a government, there's a nonprofit working together to solve problems, and you see it in some of the major cities. But I think you need to see much more of that because um, the organizations, all the good organizations during a recession, they struggle mightily. And that's when the need is the greatest. Um, so uh, you have to change the way we, we look at solving the problem. Yeah, no, good, good, keen insights. Um, as you look to the future, I'd be curious about trends, uh, trends in any light, technology trends or, or, or other trends. Uh, as you look a few years out, what are some things that are exciting you? Um, climate. Um, so I think the ESG, so, and this is interesting because it's kind of, um, I'm seeing it from a board perspective as well as an executive perspective. Um, the, you know, the environmental, social, 
governmental kind of like all of the sustainability uh, initiatives, they're all kind of coming to light now more than ever. And you're seeing this convergence where it used to be your, you know, their environmentalists talking about the environment and then companies talking about profitability. And now you're actually seeing the two kind of converge because energy, you know, of course is a limited resource, limited resources become very expensive. Um, so I think um, technologies that are dealing with climate and dealing with energy are going to become much more interesting. Um, I think technologies that address the social justice um, issues are going to be interesting. So for instance, um, I'm seeing more recruiting tools out there that are trying to take away subconscious bias out of recruiting and trying to make level the playing ground. And I think a lot of that is going to um, pop up. You're going to see more of that. Um, I think the Contra, something that's really nervous, um, a technology that I'm really interested in but also afraid of, is some of the um, machine learning, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence are positioned to fundamentally transform the way we make decisions, the way we commute, the way we do a lot of things on our daily um, journeys. But there's such an extreme gender and racial bias in technology that all of the people programming are, frankly, they're, they're white men. And I do. And so it's, it's interesting. I, um, I joke sometimes um, when I'm trying to explain this. <laughs> um, I'll have a, a white friend uh, traveling with me or, you know, colleague. We go into an airport and you see those automatic um, dispensers for soap. And I'll say, Here's, herein lies the problem. Put your hand under it. Soap comes out smoothly. It's perfect. I put my hand under it and I have to struggle. And I was like, yes, because it's designed to... to <laughs> and it's tested and, you know, it's designed and it's tested on thousands of people. Medicines you know, designed and tested, you know. Um, so it's just an interesting thing, but um, <laughs> sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Those paper towel machines, I swear, Peter, like <laughs> they don't work for me at all. I'll <laughs> sit there and wave and um, and then I'll get a colleague. They'll go, oh, it's just, yeah. <laughs> I digress. Um, but I think that I, I think the most interesting thing about technology today is the is how fast it's moving, and you can't overstate that. I mean, it's just that it used to be you know years before uh, something would come out that fundamentally changed how you did something, um, and now it's you know like six months. And it's, and it's just as quick that people forget the old way. You know, it's like Google, everyone thinks of it as a young company, um, but it's not. Um, I think they're 25 years or something like that. Um, it took them years before people started saying, I'll Google it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll Google it. Because we had um, Lycos and Yahoo, all these other searches. It took years for Google to get to the point where they became ubiquitous to search. Um, but now Uber and Airbnb 
it took them like four years to get to that point yes. where everyone's like, oh, it's like the Uber of, you know, the garbage business. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it's fascinating. I think, um, and I think it's a good thing and a scary thing. Um, and and it's one of those things that I really hope that a broad scope of people can take advantage of. Um, and it's not just something that would perpetuate the wealth disparities and the same issues that we've had for, for years. Yeah. Well, Adam Stanley, thank you so much for, for such an interesting conversation in a variety of, of important directions. I really appreciate you sharing your perspectives. Yeah, it was really good talking to you again and hope to uh, see you again soon. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Thursday when we'll feature a session from a recent MetaStrategy Digital Symposium which will include Wafa Mamili, the Chief Information and Digital Officer of Zoetis, and Vijay Sankaran, the Chief Information Officer at TD Ameritrade.